You know, the first half of the first sentence of today's gospel reading from Luke chapter 24, as they were talking about these things, comes off as a bit of a non sequitur because it literally, as it's read, does not follow anything. And it immediately raises a couple of questions, or at least should. Who's they? And what things exactly were they talking about? What's the the context of the story that Luke is telling? Earlier in the chapter, we're told that this is the evening of the Sunday of the resurrection. None of the remaining 11 apostles have yet seen the resurrected Jesus, although Peter and John had seen the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene had both seen and touched Jesus early that morning in the garden near the tomb. But when she ran to tell the disciples, Matthew tells us that they were so incredulous that they simply refused to believe her. So they were all together in Jerusalem that evening, and although Luke doesn't mention it, John says they were locked in a room cowering in fear. Earlier that first day, sometime in the afternoon, Cleopas and another disciple had met and walked with Jesus, though their eyes were kept at first from recognizing him. As they, depressed and defeated, headed to Emmaus, a village about seven miles from Jerusalem. And two remarkable things happened in that encounter with Jesus that have survived as the pattern for historic Christian worship ever since. One, Jesus opened the word of God to them. It says in verse 27 before this reading that he interpreted to them all the, in, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself igniting their imaginations and causing their hearts to burn within them. And two, in verses 30 and 31, that later, when he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And so, in verses 33 through 35, they rose that same hour, this is Cleopas and the other disciple, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered, saying, the Lord has risen indeed. Then they told all that had happened on the road, the opening of the scriptures to them, and how he was known in the breaking of the bread. So to answer those questions, the disciples are the they. And the events of that afternoon are the things they were talking about that first doubt-filled evening when Jesus finally appeared to make himself known to them. Because at first, when Cleopas and the other disciple returned, the eleven hadn't believed him, hadn't believed them either. Regardless, these things, which they all would eventually come to understand, set the course for the church for the next two plus thousand years. 
And it established a pattern, which Jesus repeated that evening as he opened the word to them and shared a meal with them. And since I talked about patterns versus particulars last week, I thought it would be good to talk about this pattern. Because this is how Jesus is known. Word and sacrament. And for followers of Jesus for millennia, these have always been together. And they're each utterly necessary for our life in faith. So that's what I'd like to consider today. What we believe, hold to, and teach about these same things the disciples were discussing that first evening. First, the Word. The Anglican Catechism says in the section entitled Concerning Holy Scripture, specifically questions 25, 30, 31, and 32, that Holy Scripture is God's Word written given by the Holy Spirit through the prophets and apostles as the revelation of God in his acts in human history and is therefore the church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Further, Holy Scripture is God-breathed, for the biblical authors wrote under the guidance of God's Holy Spirit to record God's word. God is revealed in his mighty works in the incarnation of our Lord, which are made known through inspired writings of biblical authors. God has spoken through the prophets and continues to speak through Scripture today. It continues. The fullness of God's revelation is found in Jesus Christ, who not only fulfills the Scriptures, but is himself God's Word, the living expression of God's mind, the Scriptures testify about him. In the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Therefore, ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. And so, the resurrected Jesus illumines this very thing for his disciples by appealing to the teaching of Moses and all the prophets, interpreting to them all the scripture at that time, the entire Old Testament, all the things concerning himself. In other words, he's in every story and on every page. Let me show you just a little of what I mean. Jesus is revealed in every section of the Old Testament. In Genesis, he is the hope of the patriarchs. He's the angel of the Lord. In Exodus, through Deuteronomy, he's the rock of Moses. He's the fulfiller of the law, both ceremonial law because he makes us clean in him and the moral law because he earns the blessing through the perfectly righteous life. He's the tabernacle and the final temple. In the history of Israel after Moses, Jesus is the commander of the Lord's hosts in Joshua 5. He's the true king of Israel. Indeed, he's the true Israel. He fulfills everything Israel was supposed to do and be. In the Psalms, he's the sweet singer of Israel, we're told in Hebrews 2.12. In the prophets, he's the promised king in Isaiah 1-35. through He's the suffering servant in Isaiah 40-55. through And he's the healer of the world, Isaiah 56-66. through In Proverbs, he's the true wisdom of God. Not only that, 
but all anointed leaders of the Bible, every prophet, priest, king, and judge who brings about salvation or deliverance or redemption of any kind point to Christ. Even the social and moral outsiders whom God uses, Rahab, Tamar, Bathsheba, especially those in the line of the promised seed, point to him. Jesus is the judge that all the judges point to since he truly administers justice. He's the prophet all the prophets point to since he accurately shows us the truth. He's the priest all the priests point to since he truly brings us to God. And of course, he's the king of kings. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who innocently slain has blood that cries out for our acquittal, not for our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar and go out to a strange land to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us all. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled with God and took the blow of justice so that we, like Jacob, receive only the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and uses his new power to save them. He's the true and better Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. He's the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then interceded for us and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, facing the ultimate giant of death, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. But he triumphed through his weakness, and now his triumph is ours. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace but lost the ultimate heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There are also many images or types that point to Christ. The bronze snake in the wilderness and the water of life from the smitten rock point to Christ. We know this because John and Paul tell us they do. The entire sacrificial and temple system is really pointing to him. We know this because the book of Hebrews tells us. Everything about the ceremonial system from the clean laws to the altar, the sacrifices, and the temple itself reveal who he is and what he has done. Both the Sabbath and the Jubilee laws point to him. He fulfills them both. Jesus is the sacrifice that all the sacrifices point to. Jesus is the bread on the altar in the temple, the light stand in the holy place, and the temple itself as he mediates the presence of God with us. Jesus is the one through whom all things were created. Thus, the creation story itself points forward to the new creation in Christ. And Jesus is the true Israel, a remnant of one. He fulfills all the obligations of the covenant and earns its blessings for everyone who believes. I think if we could ask Jesus what the Old Testament is about, he'd simply say, me. 
But in Emmaus that afternoon, Jesus didn't stop with exposition, with words about himself, because that's not enough. They knew him by another means. They knew him in the breaking of the bread. You know, actions can often say far more than words ever can. A handshake or a kiss is a physical act that communicates all sorts of things that we have found ourselves longing for, especially in this past year. Things for which words simply fall short. This is true of many of the most important things in life. It's why we have poets and songwriters and playwrights and and artists to explore and to help us push the borders of language to make new connections and create new metaphorical possibilities. Because if you have a profound experience seeing a stunning sunrise or sunset, falling in love, hearing a symphony, whatever it is, you quickly run out of adjectives to adequately describe it to someone else. Unless, of course, You use enough emojis and lots and lots of exclamation points. Please stop. (laughs) If you text me, you get one exclamation point per text. (laughs) But that's how it is with a lot of things in life. At some point... Words alone simply make us feel poverty-stricken. But when we can actually do something with our bodies that enables us to say, this is what it's all about, the result is something profounder than words. One of the things that I have missed incredibly in this past year is a monthly gathering of our family together after church called Wish Art Family Fun Day. Because it always ended with a dance party. Which, if you ever saw it, would be tremendously embarrassing, especially to me. Usually Earth, Wind, and Fire or some song <laughs> that just gets us all moving. You know, it's, it's just dancing. It's just dancing. But it communicates something in our family that is far, far deeper. A much deeper reality. And you know what? Sacraments are like that. They're actions that speak, that communicate beyond what words are adequate to communicate. Our catechism defines, defines it a little more formally, but it's the same thing. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and, vi- and invisible grace. God gives us this sign as a means by which we, re- we receive that grace and as a tangible assurance that we do, in fact, receive it. I mentioned this last week, and it's still true, even seven days later. Which a lot of what I say is not true seven days later, or as soon as you Google it, at least. But postmodern 
Enlightenment rationalism infects Christianity to the point where most of us assume that reality is an intellectual formula that can tie everything up with a bow. We think that, that reality actually lies in words when in fact the New Testament shows that it actually works the other way around. The flesh didn't become words. Word became flesh. Sacramental theology is about discovering how to allow that word to go on becoming flesh. It's like a pattern here, the pattern here in Luke 24. Your heart burning within you as is the word of God catching fire in your soul and then Christ is there and known in the breaking of bread. The action in the breaking of the bread is the reality that the word describes. In the bread and wine of the Eucharist, the past and present and future come together to meet us. They're gifts that enable us to reappropriate the reality of the great past redemptive acts of God described in the scriptures and also to anticipate in physical reality the redemptive events that are to come. The new creation, when the earth will be full of the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and that gives us both energy and direction for the mission of the church. The Eucharist isn't just about me and my salvation. It's a part of what enables and empowers us as a community to be the messengers and heralds of the new creation, the kingdom God is bringing and will someday bring. We taste the new creation on our lips, on our tongues, in our mouths, in our bodies. So thus nourished, we can go out and do the kind of work in the world that helps make that kingdom, God's new creation, plausible. The Eucharist rejects the false antithesis between spirituality and action. Rather, it is conjoined with mission. We pray that exact same thing in the post-communion prayer every week, the clause that begins, and now, Father, send us out to do the work that you have given us to do. We don't use the word much here, but the word mass, the Latin word that that comes from, actually means in kind of a crude way, get out means go out into the world. God's mission in the world is, of course, the challenge to repent, to believe, to receive Jesus as our Savior, to know Him for ourselves, and to rejoice in His salvation in and through our whole being, but also simultaneously to become agents of the new creation wherever we have proximity and influence. But to do that, we need word. We need sacrament. We need both. Because we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. I find it tragic that in many Christian traditions over the last 400 years, there's been a polarization between word and sacrament. Many of us grew up in faith traditions that were anxious about overemphasizing the sacraments to the point that the entire worship space was ordered so that the pulpit was the absolutely dominant feature, suggesting that the word was the one thing that truly mattered. 
On the other hand, there are some traditions where the sacraments occur with half-hearted, rote liturgy and a bare minimum of preaching and exposition of the word. And again, I just have to say this. There are no such things as rote prayers. There are only rote hearts. But in these churches, getting to the sacrament seems to be the whole thing. A lot of people moving about and doing things that really have very little word to breathe life into them or to give them direction. We need both. Historic Christian worship is a response to the whole human being, soul and body, to God's grace and love for the world. It teaches us and nourishes us as whole beings. This is why when we can... We practice word and sacrament every week because it conforms to the pattern modeled in Luke 24 was practiced by the first Christians in Acts 2 where they devoted themselves to both the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread. For an ADD pilot, that just kills me to not look up. That was an act of pure willpower there. Did anybody see what kind of plane it was? <laughs> Where was I? was practiced by the first Christians in Acts 2 where they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and has been practiced by believers ever since. Because in word and sacrament, we know and experience word made flesh, hearing, then embodying over and over and over again God's redemptive story, past, present, and future. And of course, because word and sacrament nourishes both our souls and our bodies. And all of this empowers us to become, as a church, agents of new creation in all the places to which God has called us and to which, Lord willing, we will again one day go to proclaim and promote the gospel, giving ever more time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors. Because by word and sacrament, Jesus Christ both opens eyes and empowers for mission. And his church has been making diligent use of these given means of grace since the first afternoon of the first day of the week. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.